0: We're continuing in our worship with our sermon series in First Timothy, so if we can have God's word, open us up to First Timothy, the fifth chapter we'll be looking at verses 17 through 25. First Timothy, chapter five, verse 17 to 25. And when you're there, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy, Chapter five. Verse 17 to 25. Now this is the word of the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Uh, We've been looking at 1 Timothy for a few months now, and what we have in this letter from Paul to Timothy is the blueprint for the church. This is what God, the great architect, envisioned for his church. It begins first with the cornerstone, Jesus himself. He is the beginning of the foundation of the church. And proceeding on from Jesus into the first century church, we have the prophets and the apostles who've laid the foundation by writing the New Testament scriptures. And from then on, as the church goes from the first generation to the second, from the second to the third, God calls in every generation and in all location, pastors, elders, and deacons. As time goes on and as generation moves from one to the other, this is how God builds his church. Now, 1 Timothy, interestingly, as a letter, not only gives us the structure or the skeleton of the church, but it also gives us careful instructions on how the church is to be managed and cared for. and today's passage, 1 Timothy 5, gives detailed instructions on how to treat elders in the church. Now, just so we're clear, elders isn't a dignified title for old people, but elders is a specific title Referring to those ordained to oversee the church. And so, as we've been talking about, there are two kinds of elders. First, there are elders who are called to teach and to preach, and they are often referred to as pastors, and they are elders who are called to rule, and these elders are often called elders. Now, before we get into the text, um, let me just share with you my inner rumblings as I was preparing this message. If there is one passage that I want to avoid, uh, it is this passage. Now, I, I don't find any discomfort in preaching on the hard texts that we have in Scripture. For instance, I don't have any, comfort, any discomfort Um, talking about Jesus' teaching, right, to sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me, right? I I, I don't have uh, any discomfort in proclaiming that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, as we find Paul say in 1 Corinthians. But this passage, uh, especially verse 17, where it speaks of um, pastors being worthy of double honor, Now this makes me really uncomfortable, and if I can be really honest with you, I I tried avoiding this. Uh, I skipped over this passage in the normal schedule, and we went back and forth, we put it in, put it out, put it in, put it out. And the next best thing, once we decided we have to put it in, the next best thing, what we tried to do was, we tried to find a guest speaker who would come and talk about this. We sent emails to about four pastors that we've trusted, uh, Pastor Walton and I, saying, Hey, this text is up. Can you come and teach it to our church? And they said, No, good luck with that. (laughs) Um, But here's where I now stand Um, I know that sermons are often about being uncomfortable. I know that part of the sermon is for the hearers, for you guys, for, for you all, is to be made uncomfortable by the Word of God. And I think that discomfort is not just for the hearer, but also for the one proclaiming it. So let me, in my uncomfort, share what I think God has to say about how to treat an elder in the church. And the structure, or the way in which I want to break it down, is in three parts. It's the good, the bad, and the gospel. So first, the good. If you look at me with verse 17, here's what Paul writes. Let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. If you recall two weeks ago, we looked at how the church ought to treat widows. And do you remember the word that was used for widows? How should we treat widows? We should treat them with honor. Now, this is not just for widows, but the Bible tells us to confer honor to a whole host of people. We find honor your parents, Ephesians 6. Honor your masters or your employers, right? Uh, 1 Timothy 6 uh, honor your civil rulers, we find that in 1 Peter 2. Honor your marriage. Honor your spouse. And most importantly, we find time and time again, honor God. And so please, do not be mistaken. The Bible is not stingy with honor. And honor is, isn't just reserved for elders and pastors. In fact, if you look at Romans 12.10... This is what it says. Outdo one another in showing honor. Honor is to be given to everyone. In fact, the only person that the Bible tells us not to give honor to, do you know who it is? Yourself. (laughs) The Bible never mentions honor yourself, okay? Now, so we're clear. When when the Bible speaks of honor, it, it, it speaks graciously of always giving honor to other people, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, having said all of that, we find in today's text that elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, ought to be shown double honor. Now, what does double honor mean? You know, often I hear this thrown around as a friendly joke. Whenever uh, I'm shown hospitality, people who, you know, serve food tend to give me a lot, and they say jokingly, hey, Pastor, double honor, right? Well, you know, just, just so you know, double honor doesn't mean double portion. And please, if you care for the pastors, give us less food as you consider our health. So then, what does double honor mean? Well, the word has actually two meanings. It could mean esteem or dignity, or it can mean payment and wages. Now, when the word double is used here, it's not used in the sense where it means two of the same, but I think the sense that it's conveying is both. So double honor is best understood as both honors. John Chrysostom, who is one of the most prominent pastors in the early church in the third and fourth century, said that double honor means both of these things. It means esteem or reverence. It means respect, and it means financial support. In other words, it's not just enough for a church to give pastors a salary and to support them but also to hold them in esteem with respect. Now, Paul draws support for this from both the Old and the New Testament. If you look, here's here's what he says. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, what does this mean? Well, this is in reference to an ancient agricultural method of harvesting, now, what farmers would do, here's an original, I think, I think this is an original uh, Egyptian uh, picture of this, but this is what the farmers would do. They would take a basket full of uh, wheat ears, and they would throw it onto the ground, and they would have oxen uh, tread over it or step over it. And as they step over it, uh, the, the, wheat or the wheat would, the kernel would break free from the chaff, and so this, this freed up farmers from having to do the, the laborious task and work of breaking each wheat ear to take every single kernel out. Now, while they, they did this practice, there were some, there were some roofless farmers who would, who would muzzle the oxen so that as they're treading, as they're laboring, they wouldn't be able to eat And these ruthless farmers, they would scrape everything. They would have the oxen do all the work all day, and then they would scrape everything and leave the oxen hungry. Now, this is interesting because this is found in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament law says, don't do that. Don't treat your animals with cruelty. Let them eat as they work, because when they do, they will do their work joyfully and without distraction. Now, what Paul does here in today's text is he takes this Old Testament principle and he applies it to pastors in the church. Don't put a muzzle on a pastor so that his work would be joyless and filled with many distractions. Now, the second quote that we have is the second quote, the laborer deserves his wages, This is, in fact, the words of Jesus himself. If you look, if you follow the reference, it's in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. And Jesus says this in the context of sending out his disciples to preach the good news. And so we have this, the good. What is the good? Well, the good is this. Honor your elders. Honor especially those whose job is to preach and teach. Honor them, whoever they may be whether you may like them personally or not. But if they rule well, honor them by providing for them and by holding them in high regard. Now, why is the church called to do this? Well, the church is called to do this not because pastors are special people. That much is clear. Paul and Timothy would be the first to say that they are not special. Remember Paul's confession? I am the chief of all sinners. But why is honor due to them? Honor is due to them because they are handling the Word of God, and the church holds the Word of God in high esteem. Why does the church, why should the church value pastors? Because it values pastors. The word of God, which they are called to teach. If I can use an analogy, you know, pastors are a lot like diplomats, I would say. You know, diplomats are honored. They get their own special line in immigration. I've always wanted to go through that line. But they are honored not because they are special individuals, but because they bring a word from the leader of their country. Now, I think it might be appropriate now to touch upon a, a relevant topic, uh, in which is this, this topic of bivocational pastors. Um, there seems to be a growing interest in bivocational pastors. I don't know if you've ever met a pastor who had a regular job during the week, but served the church on the weekend. And um, I think I think it's most pastors' dreams to be bivocational. I think it's a dream that you can do what you're called to do, serve the church, preach the word, do what you really love, but not be dependent on the church. I'm sure you know this, and you've run into this, but pastors have pride, too. And it is pride-sucking to be dependent financially upon a church. It is humbling. I mean, the Bible likens me to an ox. (laughs) You saw that photo, right? I don't want to be an ox. It's humbling. And if I let my pride speak, I'd say it's degrading. Especially, I think, in our context, in the Presbyterian church, because... The Presbyterian Church, if you don't know, we don't have something like the Vatican, right? An organization that owns most of the gold in the world. Uh, We don't even have a larger body that manages all the assets and distributes evenly, No, we are an independent body. So everything that's collected here directly funds the ministries of this body. And so there is no fallback. There is no safety net that we have. And when I consider this, sometimes I think, man, how good would it be if the pastors can do everything that we do yet not be dependent on the church? I think that a lot. But while bivocational ministry is necessary in some situations, in special situations, it's not the model of the church, as we find in Scripture. And I have to remind myself, at least, that while it may seem glamorous and freeing, it actually doesn't bind the church and the pastor together. It doesn't call the church and the pastors to be in a mutually dependent relationship. And so, even though I find this to be uncomfortable, and at many times, pride-sucking, this is God's blueprint for the church. Now, I know that some of you are members here, and some of you are members elsewhere. You're here attending church because you're back in town. But whichever church you belong to, and whichever pastor you labor with and partner with, honor them, those who are called to preach and teach. Now, that's the good. How about the bad? Here's the bad. 1 Timothy 5.19 says this, do not omit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Paul here, he is aware that charges will be brought up against the pastors and the elders. Because this role is a public one, those who serve in this office are often vulnerable to slander and gossip. Now, if you've been a part of the church for some time, chances are you've heard the gossip and slander and chances are you probably participated in it. This is what John Calvin writes. He says this, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. They may may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never avoid a thousand criticisms. You know, John Calvin, as as he's writing this, he's writing this not from just observation, but he's writing this from experience. Because while John Calvin may perhaps be the most revered pastor in our heritage, to his congregants in Geneva in the 1500s, he was hated. You know, from the time John Calvin started his pastoral ministry in Geneva, there were mobs and riots outside of his house at night, accusing him of all sorts of things, and trying to force him to leave the church. People gossiped. They detested Calvin. They hated him so much that they even named their dogs after Calvin. They called their dogs Calvin. And you can imagine the cruelty of some of these people. They would bring their dogs to the worship services, and John Calvin would stand up on the pulpit and he would preach for over an hour without any sermon notes whatsoever. And in between the services, you would hear the people shout, Shut up, Calvin! Sit down, Calvin! Speaking to their dogs, but really voicing their vitriol for their pastor. You know, and John Calvin, as he reflects upon that, this is what he writes. I can truly testify that not a day passed away in which I did not ten times long for death. But as for leaving the church, such a thought never once came into my mind. Calvin knows well the the slander, the, the, the vulnerability that the office brings. Now, having said all of that, Paul understands that some accusations may be credible. He understands that pastors and elders can fall into sin. And so what does he do? He instructs Timothy, if there is evidence from two or three witnesses, take up the charge. Investigate and question the individual. Now some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, you know, I think the Bible is being a little extra careful here with pastors. I think the Bible is protecting their own with this two to three witness requirement. But it's actually not. Because Paul with this verse in 19, he's actually drawing from the Old Testament again. If you look in Deuteronomy 19, this is what he says. This is what the this is what scripture says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Look here. Any crime, any wrong, any offense, any person, it doesn't matter who or what, a credible accusation needs two or three witnesses. Now, this is the general principle that we have in Scripture for dealing with a charge against anyone. Now, when Paul here speaks of dealing with charges against elders, he doesn't up the standard and he doesn't lower the standard. In other words, in the face of potential sin, Paul is saying, do not judge an officer with either more charity or with more suspicion treat them the same this i believe is in line with the teachings of the rest of scripture right because when the bible speaks about honoring people loving people serving people right it speaks of these things they are to be poured out they are to be graciously given not held back we are to love We are to be indebted in love. Uh, We are called to outdo one another in honor. But when it comes to sin, when it comes to sin, we are not to show partiality. The Bible is clear. When it comes to sin, do not give one person the benefit of the doubt over the other. It doesn't matter what office you hold. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter everyone, is to be judged the same. Do not think some people are susceptible to sin while others are not. And this follows Scripture's teaching to never underestimate sin. Never think that pastors and elders are above sin, but consider them as you would any other believer. As a sinner in need of grace, as a redeemed sinner who is prone to wandering, as a sinner who needs Jesus. And so the good, yes, honor them. The bad pastors and elders are vulnerable to sin. And we have here in in today's passage this healthy and balanced view of how we are to treat elders in the church, neither with cynicism or with idealism. Neither looking down upon them, neither being critical and judgmental of them, and neither seeing them as an idol. So that's the good, that's the bad. What's the gospel? Well, what are we to do when a pastor sins or an elder sins? Do we honor these people until the point that they sin and then do we just dispose of them? That's often been the case, but that's not what Paul instructs. First Timothy 5.20, this is what he says. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Verse 20, what we find are loving, disciplinary actions regarding sin. There is rebuke, and often that rebuke is public. But this public rebuke is not a spectacle so that people can see, they can jeer, they can mock. But through such public rebuke, the entire congregation takes a sober look at themselves because the chances are if the pastor or an elder fell into such sin, chances are there are congregants struggling with the same thing. You know, a pastor once shared with me, there was an elder in, it, in his church who had a moral fail, failure. And it was a difficult time for the church because they had to follow Scripture. They had to call that elder out and rebuke him publicly. And the pastor said, the most amazing thing happened. We rebuked this man. And weeks after that, people signed up for counseling sessions. And they wanted to meet with the pastor. They wanted to talk with the pastor. And he thought, oh, no. Are there more moral failures from this one elder? And he said, no. As they came and talked to him, they all shared how they were either thinking about committing the same sin or they have committed the same sin. so what we find is in the face or in the ugly face of sin, as there is public rebuke, the entire body is purified. There is a cleansing that takes place. And the church, once again, looks in full dependence upon Jesus. Do you know, verse 20, do you know what this is a subtle allusion to? This is a subtle allusion to the cross. You know, when Jesus bore the sin and the shame of the world, when he carried the cross to Calvary, when he was publicly rebuked by the civil magistrates and cosmically condemned by his own father, as Jesus bore the sin of the world, there were those who stood in fear, knowing that Jesus was the Son of God, Do you remember the words of that one criminal? That one criminal who was crucified with Jesus, what did he say? We are getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong, so we should be afraid. When Jesus bore our sins, there were those who stood in fear because they understood the seriousness of sin. They knew sin was so serious that our only hope for atonement and forgiveness was in the violent act of God himself sacrificing his only son. Now, while there were those who stood in fear, there were also those who mocked Jesus. They mocked Jesus because they thought that they were above it. Jesus deserved what he got, and we are not liable for any of this. Friends, still today, there are only two responses to sin. When you see sin, either you will wag your finger, you will click your tongue, you will shake your head in disapproval at people's sins. Or, you can stand in fear and once again placing and once again place your full hope and trust in Jesus you can either judge and say look at that individual or you can acknowledge that that sin is also in you and you can humbly rely and trust upon Jesus once Let me just end with just two truths. There are two truths. One's a sober truth, and one is an uncomfortable truth. But here is the sober truth. If you have been a Christian for some time, chances are you have honored the elders and the pastors. And chances are you've also seen an elder or a pastor sin. And here's the sober truth. Friends, this is a reminder that we all need Jesus, including the elders, especially the elders. You know, the Old and New Testament are the only religious scriptures that actually calls out their spiritual leaders. Do you know that? There is no other religion that openly and is soberly critical of their own leaders. There is no other religion that will openly criticize their own leaders in its own scriptures. And the reason why the Old and New Testament does this, because it points to this sober truth that we all need Jesus. No one is above it. And so this morning, I think it would be healthy for us to question, is my faith in my pastor? Is my faith in the body of believers that is the church? Does my faith rest upon years of Christian experience and Christian service? Does my faith rest upon how much knowledge I've accumulated over the years? Or does your faith rest solely in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that his death and resurrection is sufficient for you and this is the ground on which you stand? That's the sober truth. Lastly, the uncomfortable truth. Whatever your view of the church may be, However, you may view the elders of the church, the pastors. You may call the church to be hypocritical. You may be judgmental and critical of it all. That is fine. But the uncomfortable truth is this. You need Jesus too. We are all sinners in need of Christ. And your years of Christian service, and your critical thinking, and whatever moral superiority you may feel doesn't really mean much. You cannot stand on that. The great hope that we have as a church as we move forward is that the church does not depend upon its leaders, the personality of the leaders, the charisma of the leaders, the gifting of the leaders, or even the lack thereof. But the great hope is that the church stands It's built upon Christ who is the cornerstone himself. May we look to Jesus once again this morning. Will you join me in prayer at this time?